You're listening to the South Dakota Bankers Association podcast. Thank you for tuning in. This week, SDBA President Carl Adam is joined by Mike Rounds, United States Senator for South Dakota. Well, Senator Rounds, good afternoon. Welcome to the South Dakota Bankers Association. It's great to have you here this afternoon, um, the 16th of August. And just wanted to have a conversation with you as our United States Senator, serving on a couple of very important committees, one being the Banking Committee of the United States Senate. And I think our membership would be interested in learning a little bit more from your perspective about a few bills also have a couple of questions as we kind of come down the home stretch as it relates to your time in office, you know, professional reflection, as well as um, international relations and tensions that I know that you've briefed us on before, but I know our membership would be interested in your perspective. So if that's acceptable to you, we'll kind of get going. Let's go. All right. Well, Senator, this is relatively new. We've all been paying close attention to what's happened in Congress. And by the way, it, it's fair to say that this is part of your summer recess, August recess in a uh, midterm election year. We know a lot of candidates are out working diligently to get themselves in position to be reelected, new candidates doing the same. I think your August recess was delayed just a little bit as members of the Senate were dealing with a piece of legislation named the Inflation Reduction Act. Tell us a little bit about that. And I think just before we uh, entered the room this afternoon, I think President Biden just signed that. Can you give us your perspective on the Inflation Reduction Act? Yeah, this particular piece of legislation that Republicans will tell you that it is not correctly named, Democrats will say, but that's our intent. This was done through reconciliation, which is a process which, if the House passes something having to do with a budget reconciliation, in other words, if you have the House and the Senate and the President all of the same party, there is an opportunity to do something with regard to the budget, supposedly cutting the budget or balancing a budget. And in it, you can make policy. And the policy is supposed to be based upon changes within tax or spending. In this case, they have used the reconciliation process. The House passes it with 50 plus 1 percent. In the Senate, rather than being a, it is what they call a privileged motion, which means it does not have to be approved by 60 members in order to begin debate or to end debate. It is done with just the, a majority. And since we have a Republican-Democrat split of 50-50, if every Democrat votes to move forward with the process, and if the vice president is a Democrat, which she is, she can vote to break the tie at 51. And that's what's happened in this particular case. The reconciliation bill this year was this particular act. And in it, they have, well, they've, they've put together almost $740 billion in planned and appropriated expenditure authority over the next 10 years. They have also in the middle of it, decided to spend about 150 billion of it on what they call their Green New Deal. Some of the items in it, the ones that we identify and talk about a lot, is that they're going to hire about 87,000 new IRS agents, primarily in the enforcement category. That's about $80 billion. All of it is available between now and the next 10 years to come out of this act. They also said that they were going to have price fixing with regard to Medicare. Medicare is now, over the next four years, will establish a plan in which 
they will look at the most used medicines and they will then go to those locations and say, we're not gonna pay you what you normally get paid. We're going to tell you in advance how much we're gonna pay you. And if you don't agree to what we tell you, then we will put about a 95% tax on top of whatever you charge. And so basically it's not a negotiation, it is a determination by the federal government for the top 10 most used drugs through Medicare. Now, since they're going to be price fixing that, they said we don't need as much money in Medicare. So what we're gonna do with the excess money that would be in the Medicare trust account is we're gonna take that out and we're gonna move that over and pay Obamacare subsidies, which if they did not do it, the price of Obamacare in the open market would have gone up substantially in about four months. So they used this particular price fixing approach to say we'll save money in Medicare and take the money out of the Medicare trust account and we're going to put it into funding for Obamacare to reduce the prices on what Obamacare costs individuals that are getting a, a government identified reduction in their health care costs. Long way around it, Republicans have made it very clear that we don't think that this spending bill is going to impact inflation. We think, on the other hand, it's gonna have some significant impacts with regard to the cost of energy. There is a small tax, which is going into petroleum products. There's also a tax on methane, which is going into this bill. And overall, what we believe that they're trying to do is just to focus on getting people into electric vehicles. If you get into electric vehicles, that's great. If it's an $80,000 electric vehicle, they're gonna give you a $7,500 tax credit that you will get. If it's a used one, you can get up to $4,000 in tax credits, but you have to spend the money before you're gonna get any money back. Furthermore, the bigger challenge that we see is we still have to have electricity in the lines in order to charge all these vehicles that they wanna put in. I don't know if people have recognized it or not, but we're getting notices of possible brownouts and blackouts yes. right now in the existing grid. They're not building an existing grid for us and they're not allowing us to put in new power plants. And electricity doesn't come from batteries, it comes from power plants. It does not have pixie dust in it. And unless you've got a magic carpet in your garage, you're gonna have a very difficult time saying that this is an efficient way to get people from liquid fuel vehicles into electric vehicles. There's going to be a cost. The American consumer is gonna pay that bill and they're gonna be a little bit higher on gasoline prices once again. And at the same time, you're going to see a challenge trying to make the grid work in the future if they are successful in getting people to buy these electric vehicles. You still gotta have the electricity, you still gotta plug them in and we don't have enough power the way it is in the electrical line. So now that's, and I'm a Republican and I'm looking at it in those eyes. I think providing incentives is one thing, but making it more expensive on the tried and proven energy resources that we've got is the wrong way to go, particularly after two quarters of negative GDP growth right, right. and uh, inflation running in excess of eight and a half percent. Yeah. Well, very interesting perspective, and we thank you for that, Senator. It goes back to when we talk about the IRS agents and the $80 billion for the 87,000 new IRS agents. We were successful a lot with your help last spring to be able to push back on that. You know, there was a directive that community banks and banks across the country were to have to report in and out transactions of their of their individual customers, their business customers, and so forth, and trying to find a way to pay for tax. And we were successful there, but nonetheless, it found its way into this bill. 
It did, and what there is right now is is there's a 15% minimum corporate tax, mm-hmm. which they're going to impose on certain businesses. The challenge with that is it all gets run back down to the consumer. Right. And that's what we've tried to share. And at the same time, they've now said basically, if you are interested in research and technology in an area that we think is okay, then we'll give you some exemptions to that 15%. But the vast majority of the research and development now would be still subject to a 15%. And if you're going to pay less than 15% of your total profits, you can't take those deductions. Right. And so there will be additional taxes that will be paid. And our challenge is, is why would you do that when you're trying to rebuild the economy? Why would you provide incentives not to do the research that's necessary to move the economy forward? We think it's moving us in the wrong direction rather than in the right direction. And there's one more thing. And I know that at some point we're going to talk a bit about ESG and about you know, government trying to make corporations do, you know, a partisan bidding, in my opinion. Right. But I, I wanted to make this point. There is also within here two separate categories of grants which are going out for distressed neighborhood investments and environmental climate justice grants. Now, if you're going to take $3 billion of taxpayer money and you're going to put it into environmental climate justice grants, None of us really know what that is, but we suspect what it'll do is, is that'll be money that'll be provided to nonprofit organizations that do what the existing farther left groups want to have done with regard to challenging traditional business activity. Now, we don't know because that's all it says in the bill. It right. doesn't say much else, and it'll be up to this administration to administer that money, and it is going to take us years to trace back and find out where all of these tax dollars are actually going and what the money is really being spent on. So I'm not happy with it. Well, Senator, again, I appreciate that background and your perspective on that. Obviously, this is fresh in all of our minds. And I think as they, Paul Harvey used to say, you know, now the rest of the story, we'll see how this all plays That's out. Right. Okay. Well, very good. Let's moving on. You touched on ESG. Let's bring up another topic that is hard for us in the banking industry to get our hands around, and we see it in a lot of different forms. I want to draw your attention, just in the way of background, to a couple of letters, uh, one of them actually being a bill, but a letter that the ABA, our mothership, the American Bankers Association, and all state banking associations signed on to. And this was sent out to all federal regulators from the Fed to the OCC, Director of the Federal Housing Finance Authority, uh, Chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, FDIC, Department of Treasury, and the Securities Exchange Commission. And the letter basically stated, you know, do not over overreach. There is a caution that we are putting out there exactly to your point. Environment, social, and governance is what the acronym ESG stands for. I didn't hear profit in there (laughs) I don't hear profit in there either. And we're seeing this not only, obviously, at the federal level, which you are experiencing, Senator, but we're also seeing it in state legislatures. And it's of concern, uh, not only to the South Dakota Bankers Association, but my counterparts across the country. And we are trying to brace ourselves for this kind of activity going forward. It's hard to anticipate. But a lot of this ESG is around fossil fuel. Obviously, agriculture in South Dakota is our our most important industry or our largest industry. We have our farmers, our egg friends, our ranchers that uh, have feedlots that have methane gas, and our farmers use diesel machinery to harvest and plant the crops and so forth. And the concern there is that we have federal regulators over 
overreaching and dictating to private business how it needs to be done. Our biggest concern and one of the principles that we've kind of hung our hat on is, you know, we think banks should be free to lend to, invest in, and generally do business with any entity or activity that is legal without government interference. Banks should also be free not to lend, invest, or otherwise engage so long as they do not violate fair lending or other anti-discrimination laws. I think that kind of sums it up for us. Oftentimes in the bills that I've experienced and reviewed and had to battle, oftentimes the legislation is poorly written and we hang our hat on the free market. Not every bank in South Dakota is capable and have experts on staff to be ag lenders. Not every bank in South Dakota has the ability to be an auto financer. So there is different experts within financial institutions and are comfortable in, in doing that kind of business. But rest assured, everybody has an opportunity in South Dakota to find that banking relationship that fits them the best. So can you give us your perspective on ESG from, yeah. your, from uh, the United States Senator's it, perspective? What this is about is trying to use the financial system right. to actually achieve certain political agendas. Yep. Now, I'm going to get one that's sensitive. Gun dealers. Yep. Now, I've got folks on the right side of the aisle who are not happy because some banks within South Dakota won't finance guns. In fact, some of them won't issue credit cards or will accept credit cards where they're for gun sales and so forth. Now, as long as the open market is there and as long as we have competition and it's not a monopoly that's doing it, then we're okay because we can go and shop and that profit for doing those services will end up someplace else. On the other side of the aisle, we've got left-wing approaches to things primarily environmental and social justice items in which they look at things and saying, we want you to incorporate this particular environmental policy or this particular social policy. And if you don't, then we want to penalize you. So you've got them on both sides. We don't like the idea that the government is telling a private business what they should do before they provide to a stockholder a profit. We put together some items just because this is one of the more interesting ones that we've been working on. And I know you've got challenges within state legislative bodies. And my message to state legislative members is talk to the associations about what the impact is of different legislation that you're, that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But the SEC is another area that we've got real challenges with. Now, for folks that don't understand what they can do, think about this for a second. Here's what the SEC has done, and we're gonna focus for just a minute on the SEC's climate-related disclosure proposal. You heard about it? Yes, I have. Okay, this sweeping, and it is sweeping, 510-page proposed rule. To begin with, it's not necessary. It's inappropriate. It exceeds the SEC's mission. They don't have expertise in this area. And, and it's gonna harm consumers and it's gonna harm workers. And I expect that it would impact the entire US economy at a time in which we're trying to move our way out right. of a recessionary trend. Now, the federal securities laws already require that publicly traded companies make extensive disclosures regarding their businesses, their properties, their legal proceedings, and their risk factors. These disclosures must include any material climate change information and may not be misleading under the circumstances. In other words, probably the best way to put it, 
to the extent that climate change will have a material impact in any of these areas, companies are already legally required to disclose the information. Regardless of how you feel about it, we don't think that the SEC has the expertise to actually lay out an appropriate guidance anyway. Now, we've got ways of addressing it. One way, and we're proposing and looking for sponsors on one in which we would require that the SEC, if they're going to make do rulemaking, then number one, they've got to give plenty of time for comments because lately they've been shortening up the comment right. period. Second of all, we think that they should, if they're going to make these demands of disclosure, they're going to have to prove that there's a materiality to it. And for most of these social and environmental ones, there's no materiality on it. It's simply a wish list that they've got because they're pushing a particular agenda from their political point of view. We want to stop that. We don't think that should be the case. We should be talking about the safety of the banking system and full disclosure for individuals that are out there looking at whether or not their investment is there. If someone wants to go back in and ask for additional information, they can, or they can simply look someplace where there is a voluntary discussion by other corporations indicating that they are set up for social justice programs or right. environmentally sound programs that they're going to promote as part of their marketing, right. which is fine. But allow those open market things to come. Don't add additional burden and restrictions where right now the goal should be to allow people not just individuals, but responsible parties for pension plans, IRAs, and so forth, to hope that that particular investment tool they're using will actually make a profit for the people that they are acting as a fiduciary for. Very good. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Senator. You're exactly right. And state of South Dakota has, has had to deal with some of those ESG issues, and we anticipate more of that coming. Some of our states around the country, when we uh, read on it, it uh, very, very challenging but hopefully our membership, our uh, uh, members of the state legislature can understand the perspective of the banking we're, industry. And <laughs> we're very fortunate. Yes, in South are. Dakota, we've got a lot of common sense yes. uh, in the legislative body. This is one of those areas where I very seldom worry about whether or not our legislative body will do the right thing. Now, sometimes they'll take the long way around to get it done, but that's always the case. I mean, democracy has never been clean. It's always been kind of messy because we are who we are. We want to debate things, we want to try different things, and but eventually we get it right. And in this case, I'm hoping that cooler heads prevail in Washington, D.C., and that they recognize that if they really want the economy to move, it's okay to let organizations actually get a profit and distribute that profit back to people who have made investments. Everybody thinks when you have corporate profits that it's going to bigwigs, it's going into pensions it's going into IRAs it's going into you know small town locations where they've you know the employees have made investments or have had investments made by them and right. retirement <clears throat> accounts are huge but that's where the money goes and when you start restricting that money from coming back in or if you go to banks and the banks suddenly have restrictions and can't loan money because they're being restricted because of one organization's or one party's decision about what is socially acceptable at the time, that doesn't help build an economy, and it most certainly doesn't let new ideas shine. Right. Very good. Thank you. Thank you for that, Senator. Another bill that has found its way, I think, to be filed in the United States Senate, and I was recently with my counterpart from the state of Kansas, and his junior senator, uh, Senator Marshall, 
partnered with Senator Durbin on the uh, what's called the Credit Card Competition Act, also known as the Durbin-Marshall Expansion Bill. And, you know, this has to do with, uh, it's a controversial bill that, you know, we as the South Dakota Bankers Association have, have started a call to action. So uh, I'm hoping your inbox will be flooded with a number of a number of bankers and others, customers as well, that want you to push back and not uh, sign on to this bill. But it's uh, a mandate that will affect banks that issue credit. Can you give me your perspective on this? And I know that you were sitting governor, uh, I think, until 10. So, you know, the, the Durbin Amendment gave uh, a lot of bankers a great deal of apoplexy during the Great Recession. And that's when this whole thing came out. Um, and our concern was what's being passed in Congress. Um, we don't envision how this will migrate. And it's been, it's been complicated. It's been expensive. And, and in the world of cybersecurity now, the concern for your transactions to be taken care of in a secure manner, banks have back offices, cyber networks, and, and all the IT people there to help manage that, this would fly in the face of making sure, or reasonably sure, that uh, your transactions would be taken care of uh, safely and securely. To be honest, we don't think it's going anywhere, but that doesn't mean that we won't listen to folks that have concern about it. I'll also tell you that I think the retailers will probably take a differing point of view. They want to see competition on the costs involved. And as long as there are options out there for them, then, you know, I think everything's going to work out. But, you know, from our perspective, this is not the right direction to go. Uh, having a government mandate on one like this, I'd much rather see open competition. And we are going to, I'll tell you where I think it's going to come from, um, as more and more of the internet comes around and as people get more comfortable with, uh, with systems, I think you're going to see direct transactions, not so much through a credit card company, but the competition is going to come for a lot of the smaller transactions from an internet-based transaction, you know, um, um, for lack of a better term, where the price of the units don't necessarily fluctuate but people can uh, make payments directly. Directly, and, and the reason for it is going to be the simplicity and the less of a charge. But I think the retail credit card industry will respond to that. Right. And so I think just by natural competition coming through from a new source, a new way of doing business, which is out there right now, most of our kids are using it today. Yep. Uh, you the know, P2P for the, for, for the for the small for the yep. small transactions. I think you're going to see that continue to, to go. Right. And you know, there's been a discussion about well, what about all these guys that are making money, you know, on the on, on the stocks that have been transacted with regard to, you know, internet-based transactions or or values and so forth. The reality is is that's one thing I I don't think that's going to go nearly as fast as assets that are out there that uh, will allow small, small transactions to simply be done on your flip phone or right. on your phone. Right. And so from my perspective, I think the competition will be healthy and I think it will bring down credit card fees. So yeah, I think your retailers will be looking at those options as a way of saying, yeah, I'll, I'll take a payment other than on a credit card and, you know, and, and I'll happy to, to, to oblige that and I'll have systems in place to do that. But at the same time, the transaction security that you talk about is huge. Well, it's so significant, Senator. 
And to your point, yeah, there's a different uh, language that's used around my house when our kids are, you know, sending things back and forth and so forth. And I've gotten a little bit smarter about it. But, you know, it's the merger of innovation, (laughs) innovation in, in technology into a highly regulated industry. And the biggest concern that a lot of people will say, this is great until it's not great. And then the concern is if the safety and soundness measures aren't in place. And I, I totally understand and agree with you. This is coming sooner and faster. And this may generate, you know, sound minds getting across the table yeah. from one another. How do we figure this out in weeks, I, months ahead? And I think you're right when you talk about the timeframes involved. The cryptocurrencies were talked about as investments, but that's not really what I think the long-term benefit is going to be. I think it's going to be those currencies that do not fluctuate up and down. And I think banks are going to be right in the middle of it. And hopefully the banks get right in the middle of it before the federal government gets in the middle of it. Because I know there's already talk about, well, the central bank should be looking at something along that line. And I really think what they should do is, is perhaps lay out an appropriate regulatory scheme in terms of security. But it really should be the banks. And that's a great point. And also about the regulatory uh, framework, we'd be in favor of that because the concern is, you know, if there's one rogue entity out there, then we all kind of get uh, branded with that same activity. So if we can all sing off the same sheet of music, if we're all kind of governed the same way, then we understand. But I I totally agree. And and so once again, I I don't think it's going anyplace. It takes 60 votes just to get on it to begin with. There's not 60 votes in the Senate to do that, as near as I can tell. And, in right. fact, and honestly, we just haven't heard anything about it. Okay. So, but you know, if your members, you know, want to make a contact and so forth, we're happy to take the contact. That's what we do. Right. But I really, and I'm, I'm sure within a couple of weeks we'll have a stock standard answer that we'll get back out to them to let them be assured that that, that there's, there's other alternatives out there that I think. And I've received one. So yeah. yes. So <laughs> yeah. thank you. So thank you for that. And thank you. That's a great background and great perspective. Let's talk about a couple of topics. One of them that I know that you're a big fan of, um, the other one not so much, but they're both acronyms. The first one, ECORA, Enhancing Credit Opportunities in Rural America. South Dakota Bankers Association, I think we're doing a very good job of underscoring the importance of an ECORA-type legislation in Congress. You uh, have been a very a favored sponsor on that, along with senior senator from Kansas, Moran. Appreciate your support of that. We know that, uh, as you indicated earlier in state legislatures, I think most everybody wants to get to the right spot at the right time. That's how democracy works. It gets a little bit messy. We've been at this for a long time. This is an opportunity for banks that are in the ag real estate portfolio of, of their assets would be exempt from interest income tax on those long-term ag real estate loans. So I know that we've got some, I think, 40-some or so members between the House and the Senate. Unfortunately, this is a very partisan issue right now, but we have fuel in the tank and we're looking to continue with our pledge to move this forward. But uh, give us uh, your perspective on ECORA, the impact it would mean for ag producers, not only in South Dakota, but across the country. Well, it, the idea was is to perhaps level the competition. Right. As your bankers know, and as they'll talk about regularly, they recognize it as private businesses. They're not privy to or allowed to collect profits and not pay a tax on them, so they are taxed. Whereas their competition 
that is out there right now is not subject to that corporate tax like these guys are. And we got thinking, okay, so for a couple of years, I know the question was, is so when are we going to see our competition out there start to have to pay taxes like we do? Well, it's, it's hard to say, well, we're going to create a new tax on someone that has never paid these taxes. And credit unions have not paid these taxes at that level. And so the next thought that we had when we started looking at this was, is, well, why don't we simply find a path forward so that the guys who are competing against them, particularly in the ag lending area, just as an example, farm credit is another one. Yep. Why can't we allow them to level the playing field by not allowing them to, they don't have to pay the tax either on it. So rather than making a tax for somebody, we said, let's try to figure out a way so that the folks who are in this competitive world could find a way not to pay a tax as well. That's the idea behind ECORA. So what we proposed is, is that if you're going to make one of these ag loans like this, that any profits on it would not be subject to federal taxation, federal corporate taxation. We think it's a step in the right direction. And if nothing else, it draws attention to the fact that the playing field is not level. And that if you want to level a playing field, rather than always telling somebody they got to pay a tax, let's try telling everybody they don't have to pay a tax in certain areas. We'll see if it works or not. But that's the idea behind it. Yes. And, and we appreciate your support. And uh, I remember having discussions with you years ago, and that was exactly the model that you brought to our attention. As we all know, in our industry, we've, we would go to Congress and say, tax them. Mm-hmm. And we, the response was, you know, we don't want them to put another tax on them. Well, well, we don't want to put another tax on them, and that went over like a lead balloon. Right. There is This is a kinder, gentler approach. Um, we're hoping that, you know, uh, your colleague, uh, Senator Tester, you know, he leaves Washington, he gets in a tractor. If there's anybody that understands production agriculture, it would be Senator Tester who sits on the Senate Banking Committee with you. And we'd love to see members of the other side of the aisle join join forces with you. But again, we'll stay at it. We appreciate your support on this. And... The final comment I'll make on this is the sustainability. Our state, as we know, is vastly rural. You know, we have 75 plus bank members and everything from the multinational corporations to the single location country bank. What this kind of legislation would allow is to pass on that savings. And it was also the sustainability of that bank in those smaller communities. What is happening is we're seeing a lot of these large ag real estate loans that may have been booked by the bank get picked off by the unfair competitor. The savings is substantial. And the savings is substantial. And so when you have these, you know, looking for the lifeblood of country banks in South Dakota and across America, you know, uh, Senator Moran has a very similar footprint, largely rural. And it's, this is very impactful. So, the other part that I think really resonates is the sustainability, what ECORA brings yeah. to, to community banks and small communities across South Dakota. We want the availability of banking services in the local right. communities. This would help in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Well, we'll move swiftly. I know that I promised you we'd try to wrap this up in about a half an hour, and I think we're just over that time right now. But uh, one other uh, acronym that I know you and I and, and members of our association have had discussions with is the SAFE Act. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so we talk about the Safe Banking Act, which would uh, aim to protect banking institutions as well as their insurers that choose to offer services 
to legitimate cannabis-related businesses, I guess, um, would uh, exonerate them or not make them be concerned of uh, federal prosecution. There has been a couple of, I'll call them the memorandums that were out there under the uh, the Cole Memorandum that was under the Obama administration uh, that was kind of a memorandum that kind of allowed uh, banks to bank cannabis where Assistant Attorney General Cole indicated we're not going to use our resources for this kind of legitimate activity in states where it's otherwise been passed. And so there's a lot of banks across the country that have had, you know, cannabis, legal cannabis laws, uh, using our friends in Colorado since Mm -hmm. 2012, to bank cannabis. But we are looking for something more robust. I I know our membership, we were able to pass um, in 2021, the SDBA passed uh, House Bill 182, which allowed the banking of legal cannabis in hemp businesses. Now we need to add some flesh to the bone. I think that this is something that I know has been before Congress a number of times. It's never been heard in the Senate. What is your forecast on something like this going forward? I think you have a couple of problems. Politically, banks are not in favor with the folks that are in power today. I don't think they're going to help the banks just to say, you have a problem because you want to get into the business. But I, I think, number one, you, you start out with that position in there or, or you wouldn't be seeing the challenges that you've got right now with regard to the ESG challenges and so forth. And the demand more and more that banks do things based on their ideologies. The second piece on this is, is remember that at the federal level, marijuana, the sale of marijuana, the use of marijuana and so forth is all still illegal. It's still a, it's still a scheduled drug. It's an illegal drug according to federal law which is really where this has got to be addressed if you really want to fix the problem. In the meantime, what you've got is a concern by a lot of folks saying you want to make it easier for the guys to basically promote marijuana. The other piece on it and the part that that I tend to look at is, is what would you do if you were in the business and you wanted to launder, how would you launder that money that's coming through? particularly since this is still a scheduled one drug and we don't know what the next administration may do or if this administration decides they're angry at a particular segment of the financial services industry, can they simply come back and say, guess what, folks? You've been actively involved in, in doing something which is a violation of federal law and we've decided it's time to uh, send a message. And I think all of those, while they are remote, may very well be used as threats to legitimate businesses later on. Do we have a problem? Absolutely. Look, you got plumbers that just simply want to go yep. in. You got a retail, or you got someone that rents the building mm-hmm. to somebody. Now they're going to go on in and they're going to have a legitimate business according to state law. But under federal law, they're still creating a drug which is a scheduled drug. Right. And under federal law, it's still illegal. Well, what happens then when that landowner says, I got a plumbing leak, I got an electrical problem. Now you got a plumber or an electrician coming in. They're going to go to work and they're going to fix something in there. Well, guess what? Now they've got a problem because they are now receiving funds from an illegal activity on the side of production of marijuana. So is it a problem? Yeah. Um, Do I have a solution for you right now? No, I don't, except to say that there's a heck of a lot of cash out there floating around, which is not safe either. And these folks at the at the state level are doing it. And until such time as there is an agreement somewhere within the federal system 
to address either saying if it's legal in the state we're going to allow it to be legal but there is nothing coming over on the senate right now at all and i think on the on the house side i think it's because they want to go farther than that and they'd like to just totally totally legalize the whole system on right. it and walk away and in the senate we're a little more conservative and i don't think they're going to get that job done so in the middle of it sets legitimate businesses trying to figure out how they address the interaction with organizations that are producing and selling cannabis. Gotcha. Well, I wish I had a better answer for you. I don't. No, no, it's a a good answer. Um, It's where we are. And I appreciate your perspective on the landscape right now. And I think just for our listeners and for our discussion, I know I've shared this with you before. It's not that we advocate on behalf of cannabis. I understand. We advocate on behalf of our financial institutions. You touched on a couple of things that are really important, to, which is the cash that's laying around and the cannabis-related businesses, the plumbers, the electricians, et cetera, that are all kind of interwoven in this, and it gets complicated. So. Yeah, look, the one thing I would share is, is the banking organizations that are out there, and you're going to have businesses coming in saying, what am I supposed to do? I just came in. I, you know, I, I did a plumbing job. I did an electrical job, or you know, I had to fix the guy's roof or whatever. I just say this. Get to your legal folks and find out from them the safest and best approach under the current conditions that a banker can do. Recognizing there's real challenges here, but I would not go so far as to say don't worry because I don't think that anybody would be out of the woods if they're banking or assisting on cannabis projects. Very good. Well, thank you, Senator. You know, as we wind down here, I, I know that your service uh, on the Armed Services Committee, obviously you have a lot of uh, briefings as it, as it relates to not only what's happening within the country, but also what's happening globally. And there's concerns uh, that we all have, uh, the uh, Ukrainian-Russian uh, conflict or war, whatever we want to call it right now, and also, you know, the uh, concern with China and Taiwan. What do you see the long game being in both of those situations? And what as Americans can we or should we be concerned with, if anything? We sit here one year after our debacle in Afghanistan. That has colored everything else. I not only sit on the Armed Services Committee, but I also am a member of the Foreign Relations Committee at this time as well. And I get briefings in both committees, a number of which are in what they call the TSSCI level there. It's, it, it is a top secret discussion, but it, and it's segmented. It's compartmentalized, meaning we don't learn who the sources are that are giving us the information or the techniques that they necessarily use to get the information, but we do get the analysis and why they think the analysis is correct. And the only way we get it is we, as you're hearing right now in the news about you know, top secret stuff and TSSCI stuff and so forth. You're not allowed to have phones. You're not allowed to have Fitbits. You're going to a room, you know, perhaps the size of the room that we're in right now with other people, but it's only certain individuals that can go in there. They set the room to begin with for a particular category, and there is no communication in or out of that room as long as that discussion is going on. And so they give us some pretty good depth on what actually is happening in Ukraine what the analysis is on the logic that Russia is using, the mistakes that they're making, the resources that we're putting in, uh, what the anticipated resources are, what the intelligence is concerning that, what's going on there with their economy and, and with their ability to defend themselves and which way the war is going. 
we get the same kind of a fee feedback in with regard to China and Taiwan. It is fascinating to us that once it became clear that the United States was withdrawing or appeared to be withdrawing from Afghanistan in a very haphazard get out of dodge on this particular date, that set the stage where Putin looked at this and said, there was never a better time because right now the United States is withdrawing back in. At that point, we had inflation already on the move. We had gas prices that were already up more than a dollar. And it looked like the focus was going to be on our domestic issues here at home rather than on being a superpower and uh, continuing our position as saying free trade is what we want across the world. When Russia came in, they thought that it was going to be a very short war. And based on his intel, he thought he was going to be a welcoming conqueror and it wouldn't take long and that Ukraine would just give up. The president would leave the country and take the ride that the president offered him. Mm -hmm. And instead, Ukrainians said, this is our country and we're not going to give up that easy. That was a shock to the Russians. And the Europeans looked at it and said, we never thought for a second that Russia would ever do something this calloused, this overt. And it scared the heck out of them. And now you have a, literally a united Europe saying, this guy really is a problem and there's something that's amiss here. And he clearly does not have the judgment that we thought he had. Now they are in the midst of trying to figure out what they're going to do with regard to energy, that Russia is literally a, a gas station for Europe. And now they have to find other resources. We could be giving them those resources because of our domestic policies here restricting or not encouraging production, the price has gone up worldwide. Mm -hmm. We expect that Ukraine, which is normally an exporter of food, they're the breadbasket, they're going to be able to get out about 75% of what they had in storage. Uh, normally they could do about 20 million ton. They're going to get about 15 million ton out from what we can see right now. And hopefully they don't blockade the ports and they are allowed to ship out the grain that's that's been in storage. That will allow them in some cases to get some of their current growth into the bins. They, they didn't have any room before. So now they should have some room. With regard to the time frame, they're not looking at winter. The equipment that the United States has sent over and that our allies have sent has been devastating to Russia. It's long enough range to where it can reach out and get to their ammunition dumps, which they're using. The Ukrainians have proven to be very adept at using uh, very carefully the resources that we have delivered to them. And it surprised the Russians. Most people were also surprised at how lackadaisical the Russians were about their planning and about their capabilities. It did not show well for the Russian armed services and, and they have had significant casualties. We could expect that this will be a long, drawn-out conflict. The Ukrainians are not going to give up easily. And the Russians, as they move forward, we don't know how Mr. Putin plans to get out. And we don't know how long the Russian generals and uh, the, uh, you know, the people that are also sharing part of that power, how long they will allow him to continue down this path. And there aren't a whole lot of other alternatives for him. <laughs> you, you know, Russia doesn't have free and open elections right. where you simply leave and you can go back in and retire and enjoy life. Uh, that doesn't happen in Russia. Gotcha. So that part there is, is where we're at, and we're, we're watching it. They're a nuclear power. We're going to do our best to stay on top of what his actions might be. We 
want to make sure that he recognizes that you know we still have a deterrence here and that our systems are working the b-21 bomber which will be housed here at Ellsworth Air Force Base is a good example of what new developments are where this is the most sophisticated weapon as I say it's a badass weapon of war and peace and this is the most sophisticated aircraft that we've ever really developed but it's designed to be able to get through any known uh, radar systems in the world today which tells them that we do have the ability to reach out and touch should they ever get too provocative right same way with china we've looked at a number of war games there the challenge is is it's in their backyard it's not that far from china to taiwan it is a very sensitive part of the world and it's a sensitive part of the world because they do the chips and the most technologically advanced chips that go into real high-end equipment as well as a huge number of traditional chips that go into a lot of our vehicles here are made in Taiwan. And we don't have other sources yet. And it's not just the fact that it's not just making the chips, it's making the equipment right. that actually makes the chips and it's constantly changing. So the better you get at making the equipment that makes the chips is part of the key. That equipment that makes the chips doesn't necessarily come from Taiwan, it comes from Europe. So it's a matter of what's going on in Europe and then how do you move production so that you have not just production coming out of Taiwan, but from the United States as well. A huge challenge because it takes years to bring sure. in the equipment, set it up, and then to get trained in order to do so. Uh, the other thing I would say is, is this, since it's so far to get over there, it's a real challenge for the United States, but we have a Navy which goes through that area, but that also puts our Navy at risk from attack by short-range Chinese uh, offensive weapons. The best thing, in my opinion, that we can do is to help the Taiwanese to become a porcupine, make it so challenging for China to simply go in and take them that if they decide to fight just like the Ukrainians decided to fight, that Xi Jinping would think twice about aggressively going in and would continue trying to forge relationships with them long term. That's the best hope we have. Very interesting perspective, Senator. And that's the latest on that. And we appreciate that very, very much. Final question, and just a kind of time to reflect. The Rounds family uh, raised in Pierre, or this, the Michael Rounds family, the Don and Joyce Rounds and Rose family here in Pierre, um, known you for uh, many, many years as uh, known most of your siblings. If you didn't graduate with your the dad, rounds. Your dad was our was our business attorney in our business at Fisher Rounds, and he described himself as a scribe, <laughs> which meant he would write the business deals for us. So right. we go way, way back. Yeah, we go way, way back. And I harken back to your you know last 30-plus years in elected public service. I know it's a blink of an eye, but it's been a few years. And just in the way of uh, quick background for our listeners, and many of you know this, but Senator Rounds served in the South Dakota Senate from District 24 from 1990 to 2000, and in your final term as Majority Leader. Six, six years. Six years Majority, majority leader. leader. Two consecutive four-year terms as Governor from 02 to 10, okay. and then uh, has been uh, just recently successful winning his second consecutive term uh, in 2020 to the United States Senate with a 65% uh, voter approval. And 
tell us how your years of public service and your view on government has perhaps changed or evolved from your time in the state house to serving as our governor to now the United States Senator. Government at the most local level is still the best. And although we have the ability to interact, I think one of the most important things that government officials can do is to respect their role in a constitutionally directed government. Bill Jankel told me, and I still believe this, that the role of government is pretty simple. You protect society from those who would do it harm. You take care of those that can't take care of themselves, the very young and the very old. And you provide a quality education for our kids because they are our future. Make it pretty simple that way. And each level of government within the United States has a particular role to play. I like the idea that we try to keep government at the most local level we can. But you have certain constitutional directives at the national level that are critical. Provide for the national defense and provide for the regulation of interstate commerce. Really, that's the only constitutional directives that you find of the legislative branch. The president, as the commander-in-chief and as the chief executive, is designed to enforce the laws. I think we sometimes forget that in a republic, you expect individuals to go to work for you and to get the job done, and then to come home and to live with the rules that are made. I love the fact that the South Dakota legislature is part-time and that they're not there all the time. Working as a governor was the greatest job in the world. I loved it. You were wore out at the end of the day, but it was truly just like Mitch McConnell will say to us that he has yet to find a senator who was a former governor that said he would rather be a senator than a governor. And then he always also says, and if you do find one that tells you that he'd rather be a senator than a governor, he'll lie to you about other stuff as well. And, uh, and, and, and I think Mitch is correct. Working as governor is the greatest job in the world. But I have an opportunity working in the United States Senate to impact not just domestic policy for the states in terms of trying to slow down the, the impact of, of an overreach of government, but also to secure for the United States that protection of everybody with a strong national defense, which has really been fascinating for right. me. Right. Well, Senator, that brings us to the end of our podcast. Can't thank you enough for your time, your perspective, giving us the latest and greatest from your position as United States Senator. We thank you for your service. We know it's not easy. I, I truly appreciate and value what you do for our state daily. I know you've got a young family. You're surrounded by your kids and lots of nieces and nephews and brothers and sister. And Don't forget um, those 10 grandkids. And those 10 grandchildren that are lovely. And we know that uh, spending time with them is uh, awfully important to you. And you make that, that effort to go back and forth with some frequency to Washington to take oh, care of our that's state. That's one thing that I think people don't realize is, is most members of the Senate are there Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night. And then they go back home to their home states for Friday and Saturday and Sunday. Right. And it's great to have you with us today, and thank you again for your service and all you do for South Dakota and, the, and our industry. Thank so, you. Thank Appreciate you the much. opportunity. Yes, thanks okay. again. Thank you for listening. Join us for our next episode coming soon.